You are listening to Move With Radiance with Stephanie Dankelson, a podcast all about redefining your relationship to exercise, food, and your body by learning how to first redefine the relationship with yourself. Are you ready to discover your inner truth, your inner radiance? Because we all deserve to feel at home in our bodies. Hello, hello. Welcome to Move With Radiance. I'm your host, Stephanie, and I'm just going to dive right on in today because I am really excited about this episode. I had Chris Sandal on. He's host of Real Health Radio, and a few months ago, I came across one of his podcast episodes on weight set point theory, which I link this episode up in the show notes. And I highly recommend you check that episode out as well, because he goes into a lot more depth (laughs) in that episode than we do in mine. But it's, I just really wanted to have more conversations around this topic because I've talked a little bit about it, but wanted to bring someone on who has done some extensive research behind it and who could speak to it a little bit better than I could. So in this episode, we dig into weight set point theory, what it is and some of the science behind it. Um, I don't want to dig into all the specifics now, but this is this concept really helps just give more insight into why dieting doesn't work and why all of us have a different weight set point when it comes to our body size and all of that. And so we really go into the science behind it. And we also talk about, you know, the calories in and calories out mentality and how it's not as simple as it's made out to be the many different things that factor into a person's health and weight, embracing body diversity, understanding what healthy means to you and a lot more. So we go into a lot of studies, science, and research around these topics. So if you like facts, then this episode is for you. And before we jump in, let me tell you a little bit more about Chris. Chris Sandel is a UK-based nutritionist and studied at the College of Naturopathic Medicine before setting up his own company, Seven Health, in 2009. He now works with clients all over the world, and his approach to food and health is non-dogmatic. He helps his clients to find their own personal best health, whatever that means for each individual. He understands that health isn't just about the food you eat and so focuses on a wide range of factors. He has a specific interest in the psychology of eating, improving clients' relationships with food and body image issues. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Here is Chris. Hi, Chris. Welcome. Hey, Stephanie. Thank you for inviting me on the show. I'm uh, really excited to chat. I had a previous guest, Jamie, mention you and your work on, or your specific episode on weight set point theory. And I was like, I just have to have him on to chat with him myself. So thank you for, for uh, joining. Cool. Well, yeah, it's uh, an episode that a lot of people um, have reached out about. Uh, so it, it seemed to be something people are really interested in. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to diving into it with you. Great. Well, why don't you first start off with telling us a little bit about you and your work, and we'll just kind of go from there. 
So I'm a nutritionist. I'm originally from Sydney, Australia, but moved to the UK when I was like 21. Um, and then while I was over here, sort of discovered nutrition. Um, and so, so studied for three years and, and then qualified as a nutritionist in 2008, 2009. And I really didn't know what I wanted to do or what area I wanted to, to specialize in. At the time, I'd been doing lots of marathons and, and triathlons. And so I originally was thinking maybe going into sort of more the, the sports nutrition side of it. But uh, I always found that quite dry and I quite liked the, I don't know, more of the, the touchy-feely side of, of the nutrition work. And uh, what started to happen just by chance is a lot of the people who showed up in my practice to start with uh, were people that on paper they were eating well um, and sort of well in inverted commas. They were doing what sort of all the magazines tell you to do or um, what most people would think of as, as healthy eating or clean eating, et cetera. But they had lots of symptoms that were going on in terms of poor digestion or uh, trouble with their sleep or their, their periods had gone missing. Um, but alongside that, they also had a lot of struggles around their food and, and worrying about if it was the right amount of food, worrying about gaining weight um, and just sort of on that sort of disordered eating spectrum. And this wasn't something that I, I knew at the time, um, but yeah, just started to work with people in, in that realm and became really interested in exploring all of the ideas around people's relationship with food and how that has an impact um, both on the choices that people make but also directly impacts on how the body functions and, and just started getting into more of the, the psychology piece and the mental emotional piece and that was then what I then started writing about and then later on uh, created my own podcast and, and would talk about those topics as part of the podcast. And so that was just uh, the kinds of clients that more and more showed up in, in my practice. And so that's now what I, I really work on with people where it's uh, looking both at the, the physiology side of things. So how can we improve all the various systems within the body, but also touching on the, the psychology side of things and people's relationship with, with food, their relationship with body, their beliefs, etc. So it's kind of marrying those two things together is, is really what I, I do now. Awesome. Um, so I really want to dig into weight set point theory. And this is something that has come up a couple of times. I've, I've heard it mentioned on like a podcast and then I've, I've written a, like a very brief blog post about it, but um, I know that it's, it's, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's something that hasn't been talked about like a ton recently, um, or it's just now starting to kind of surface and um I don't know. I just think it's, we should just be talking about it more. So can you just tell us a little bit about what is weight set point theory and we'll just branch from that? Yeah. And look, what I, I want to preface this with is this is a really complex topic. Yeah. And what I often see presented with this is uh, a very narrow view of, of what goes on or, or how 
weight set point sort of works. And so what I'll try and do as part of this conversation that we have is to sort of explore some of those different nuances. Um, but I also would want to just direct people to the, the podcast that I did on this. I think it's about an hour and a half of me just going through lots and lots of research um, just because depending on who you read and what their bias is, you'll get uh, a take on what set point really means. Um, and what I tried to do was, was kind of put my biases to the side as, as much as that is possible or not possible. Um, and, and just to kind of show what are the, the different bits of evidence looking at it from, from different angles. So yeah, I just want to preface this by, by saying that because most people who've probably heard about set point theory have heard a very narrow explanation about, about what it is. Yes. That's, um, so, My understanding. <laughs> so just then going from there. So weight set point theory is the the idea that the body naturally and automatically controls your weight. And the theory suggests that your body weight is regulated um, at a predetermined or a preferred level by different feedback control mechanisms within the body. It's not a specific number, it's a range. And it's often a range estimated between 10 or 15%. So most people will then fluctuate up and down within this range on a regular basis. However, moving outside of this range then becomes much more difficult. And people can do that. So people can sit at a set point that is, say, lower than where their body would automatically or uh, preferentially want to be, but your body then starts fighting back against you um, because it really doesn't want to maintain there. And so what the body will do um, is on one hand, it will try and make you you hungrier and it will try and make you uh, use less energy. So that can be making you more lethargic, making you not want to go out running, etc. cetera. Um, and on the other hand, it will then turn down certain functions. So it looks at, okay, what have we got coming in? What can we actually then be spending on? And anything else, it just gets turned down or turned off. So you can live at a place that is lower than where your body ideally wants your set point to be, but that then has impacts on your health. And I would also say that the opposite is true, although this is probably less true for everyone across the board and there can be different extreme examples as part of this. So your body also will fight back against you putting on weight or going to, to a higher end. And, and I put myself as an, as an extreme example as, as part of this. So I did uh, a whole podcast on this. I, I tried to do an overeating um, experiment and I'm someone who is naturally lean for, for pretty much my whole life. I've always struggled to put on weight. And so I decided, hey, I'm going to sort of test this out as, as part of it. So for nine weeks, I... Uh, tried to eat as much food as humanly possible. And I, I kept a log of all of this and, and over that period ate uh, just shy of an extra 35,000 calories on top of what I, I need to, to maintain my normal weight. So it's about 3,300 calories a day as part of that experiment. Mm -hmm. And to start with, my weight went up, uh, but then I started to plateau and then I started to come back down the other side, despite the fact that I was still eating that inordinate amount of calories each day um, compared to what supposedly I'd need. And so I don't think that necessarily happens with 
everyone. Um, as I said, I think I'm at the extreme end of things, but it's just an example that your body will then fight back to try and get you uh, to stay within the band that you're meant to be in as part of your weight set point. Mm. So, okay. So I have a couple of questions from that. So I guess if we're looking at um, like women who do extreme dieting, is that in like your body starting to fight back would like losing your period and those kinds of things, that's kind of a way of your body saying, Hey, I'm, I'm too low. Like we need to start getting back up. It starts shutting down certain functions. Correct. So if you think about it from your body's sort of hierarchy of needs, um, reproduction is not high up on the the totem pole of what's important because not only do you have to use energy for sex, but you then have to use energy to grow a human baby, which is the the, the rough estimation is 50,000 calories on top of what you would need um, on your everyday life. Plus then to breastfeed, you need 500 to 1,000 extra calories every day as part of that. So when your body's thinking, okay, do I want to be putting out reproductive uh, hormones that could potentially uh, lead to pregnancy, it's thinking about all of those things. So, yeah, your body thinks we don't have enough just to get by on our own. We're not going to give the opportunity for you to potentially get pregnant. And so it then just turns off reproduction. Right. Um, and so, okay, this was, I think I read this somewhere and I can't remember if you mentioned it or not, but if people have been like chronically dieting over the course of their life, does their weight set point like change because of that? Or does that get screwed up because of that? Or does that, does it not matter? Does that make sense? (laughs) Um, It depends who you read. And so this is kind of a a contentious issue or, or, or it kind of depends. And so one of the things that I talk about as part of um, when I did this podcast before and when, when looking at set point is your body has different proxies for trying to work out what do I weigh. And there's, again, there's different arguments for, for what are the things that the body's looking at. And, and my position on this is there probably isn't just one. There's probably lots of different things that are going on. Um, but what it wants to do is look at different statuses of, of different uh, substances within the body to think, how am I doing here? And so when someone repeatedly diets, what will typically happen is they will lose some weight, they then start to eat food again, they go off their diet, um, they start to put weight on again, and so they'll start to weight cycle. Weight goes um, down, then it goes up, then it goes down, then it goes up. But what typically happens with each of these different Um, times that someone loses weight and then puts it back on again is you change your lean tissue composition, meaning that you typically start to have less and less lean tissue and more and more fat as part of each time you put on weight, even if you end up weighing the same amount as you did before. Mm. And what it looks happens as part of set point theory is Lean tissue seems to be one of the proxies that the body is then using to work out how much do I weigh. So if you then get back to your original weight that you weighed before, but now your lean tissue is less, your body thinks I'm still weighing less than I was before. And this was actually I mean, a really good example of this is the Minnesota starvation experiment. Um, have you talked about this in one of your previous podcasts or any of your previous guests talked about this? No, no. So if you want to dive into it, that would be awesome. 
So the Minnesota starvation experiment um, is actually an experiment that you really couldn't do anymore. Um, for, for ethical reasons, they just wouldn't allow an experiment like this. And so it's often one of those experiments uh, that is referenced a lot just because we don't have a way of being able to, to replicate it today. But basically, it was towards the end of the Second World War, and there was the potential that a huge amounts of the world was going to be entering into serious famine. And so they wanted to start to look at, okay, what happens to the body when it is starved? What happens um, physically in terms of different organs and systems when the body just isn't getting enough um, food coming in? So they took, uh, I think it was 35, 36 men as part of this study, people who'd been conscientious objectors to the war and to, to really shorten it, they, they starved them over a period of 26 weeks. Uh, I think they originally needed around about 3,200 calories to maintain weight. They cut them down to somewhere around 1560, something like that. So pretty much halved uh, their calorie intake. And they did this over a period of, I think it was 24 or 26 weeks. Um, and over that time, all of the men lost 25% or roughly 25% of their, their body weight. Um, and then afterwards, they the, the original experiment, what they wanted to do was afterwards feed them different types um, of food to see what would happen. So still keeping the calories low, but what happens if we have this higher amount of protein or this higher amount of carbohydrates, et cetera, um, to see, okay, what would be best in terms of rations. And what they discovered is it really didn't make that much of a difference. Um, but what then happened after that was they then let the guys um, eat whatever they want. Um, and what happened was they then just started to unleash in terms of their eating. And so there were guys that were eating up to 10,000 calories a day. I think in the first week or two, the, the, the average for all the men was about 500, uh, 5,000 or 5,500 calories a day. Um, and as part of this, they obviously started to, to gain weight. But the reason I'm bringing all of this up was after 12 weeks of that, Un, um, uh, uninhibited eating when they're allowed to eat as much as they wanted, um, their fat percentage actually matched up to their pre-experiment levels, but their lean tissue was much less. Mm. Um, so the weight then kept increasing and they, they were still had this sort of insatiable hunger. But it was then at around about the eight-month mark that their lean tissue was then restored. So it matched up to what it was pre-experiment level. Uh, but now I think their abdominal fat was about 40% higher than when they started. But it was then at this point that despite the fact that they then didn't start dieting, they just continued to eat to Sadie, that their weight started to come back down. And so I think it was basically about a year after the experiment, um, somewhere around 50, 50 to, to 60 weeks, somewhere in that ballpark, that all of the men were then back to roughly the pre-experiment levels. And so the reason I bring all of this up was to say it was really with these guys, at least in that experiment, when their lean tissue got restored, that thing started to change again. So does dieting permanently change your weight set point? Maybe, maybe not. It could be just that most people when they diet and they go on and off and on and off diets, they just never get back to that lean tissue that they started with. And so their body's just not getting the, the, the right feedback 
or it might be that it does actually permanently make changes. My hunch is that it's not a permanent thing, but I don't really know. Right. Okay. And so this is just another question that came up when, as like, if when we're going through that diet binge, diet binge, um, we tend to have more of the, instead of lean, we have more fat. Is that a safety mechanism that the body naturally like puts on more fat when they gain the weight back? Yep. So that's part of, part of a safety mechanism as, as much as we can ascertain from, from this experiment and, and from others. So what the body preferentially does is, is put weight around the, the abdomen and kind of creating more, more fat there. And, and kind of the order of things is put down the fat, then start to do things like bone and tissue and organs later on but that that's the first part that it starts to do because in a sense the body's coming out of a famine it's like okay we don't know how long this good eating is going to go on for so let's just load up on things just in case this is going to stop and so it's almost trying to give itself a little bit of a buffer which is why uh people uh have this feeling that after years and years of dieting their weight has just continued to to go up because each time the body just wants to just have a little bit more of a of a buffer um in case the the famine starts again Mm. no that makes sense um can we talk about calories in calories out and your thoughts around that uh yeah so calories in calories out i don't necessarily disagree with but i think it's a lot more complicated than just eat less move more or all the kind of the simple ideas that people have because calories like if we we think about the calories in component so you've got okay the, the calories that are in a particular in a particular food but even within that food you can have three meals five meals ten meals that are all apparently the same amount of calories but actually when you eat them uh very different things happen but depending on what you can digest from that from that meal and that's the 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 thing is that the calories are about how much you can actually get out of what you're eating and again this can come down to where does your body think it is as part of its set point so if it thinks it's lower down um, and and it needs more energy coming in it can start to crank up digestion so that you're able to digest more and get more out of your food Um, this doesn't always necessarily work because again if you haven't been getting what you need your body turns down certain functions because it just doesn't have the resources to do that Um, and so sometimes your digestion also gets turned down as part of that so it doesn't always just work as simply as i i talked about there but in terms of the calories in component it, it really matters about a what's in the food um, which also if you're looking at calorie estimates as part of um some some app uh that also like varies wildly because it, it depends on okay what does like how big is your medium potato versus someone else's medium potato but also how much sunshine happened um during the growing period how much water happened during the growing period etc meaning that you could have I don't know, again, using potatoes, you could have five potatoes all look the same sort of size and weigh the same amount, but have very different amounts in them just depending on the the soil quality and everything that's gone into it. So you've got that calories in component, which is um, 
sort of a little bit messy, but you then also have the calories out component. And most people think calories out is just sort of exercise. Do, do I go for a run? Do I go and lift weights? But there's actually sort of four main parts of this. So there's your, your basal metabolic rate, which is what is the body doing um, or, or what energy does the body need just to do its sort of bare bones function. So to, to pump around your blood, to, to run your different systems. I, I often think of basal metabolic rate of what would you need when you're in a coma just to, to keep things ticking by. Uh, but again, even that is variable because if you reduce your calories so much, your body just starts to turn off or turn down crucial functions because there's just not as much coming in. So basal metabolic rate is one part of the, the calories out equation. You then have the thermal energy used as part of digesting your food. So you use uh, the energy from your food to actually run your digestion. And again, that can, can differ um, from, from person to person. And then the, the other two components are about movement. And one of them is called NEAT, which is non-exercise activity thermogenesis. And this is all of the tiny little movements um, or the, the kind of more uh, just day-to-day movements that we do outside of what we typically think of, of exercise. So this could be standing, it could be walking, it could be making food, it could be doing uh, the, the laundry, hanging out, washing, it could be you sitting, fidgeting in your chair, etc. So all of those little amounts of um, movement that you do, and this, again, can vary massively, and, and how much you're taking in in terms of your calories can, can really alter this. There was a, an experiment where they, I think it was they increased some... Uh, the participants' calories by about a thousand a day. It was some astronomical amount, a thousand calories a day, um, and they did it for I think it was six weeks or eight weeks, um, and and then kept a track of how much this this changed things, um, and people's NEAT scores uh, went up. Sort of huge amounts, and I think the the person who had the most, their neat, so their their amount of like fidgeting and many amounts of movement throughout the day, went up by about five or six hundred calories, um, and that just just because they started to to eat more. Um, so you've got that part of the the calories out, and then the final part is the the actual exercise component. Um, so how much weightlifting are you doing or running are you doing or, or kind of fill in the blank exercise. Uh, but again, this also varies. So if your body doesn't have as much calories as it wants, uh, it's going to make your drive to do exercise um, less so. Uh, so you, if you go for a run, you want to run less or um, you, you don't even want to run to begin with. Or even when you are out exercising, uh, your body starts just using less energy as part of that exercise. And then the, the opposite can also be true. If there's more of an abundance of, of energy coming in, then, then it pushes you more to doing more energy and starting to expend that. So I don't like, I think there's a lot of people who's like, oh, calories in, calories out um, isn't true. Uh, that, that I would disagree with. Like it, it is true, but it's way more complicated than, than most people think about. Yeah. I was just curious because I just see it so much being used as like a main way of, you know, you need to lose weight. So calories in, calories out. And that's like the main metric that's being used. And I don't think any of those other things are, you know, accounted for. <laughs> um, yeah. And it, it's tough because a lot of those 
um, studies that all, all point to it, what they do is they look at, it's like metabolic ward studies. And so this is where you keep someone in a really controlled environment and, and then basically prove that if you reduce your calories by this amount, uh, this leads to weight loss. So yeah, it's just calories in and calories out. But there's just a lot more complication than that because of a people's lives are more complicated than than living in a in a kind of experiment lab um but b there's a lot of other factors that can then start to to play into what your body decides to be doing um in terms of that calorie math how much it's deciding to push you towards food or push you away from food how much it's deciding to put into your body using or not your body using um so so yes i i I would agree with you. I think it's very simplified in terms of how people talk about it. Um, you said something that kind of sparked my interest or, and I don't know if this is kind of a tangent maybe, but do you think that, cause I know that, you know, if we have an excess of energy, then we're wanting to move more. And if we have a, you know, a deficit, we're wanting to, you know, we're tired and we're, you know, we should probably listen to our body in that sense. Do you think that so many people are like disconnected from what our body's actually trying to tell us that we can't actually, understand those cues uh yes i i I really do so excuse me um yeah i i really do think that that people just don't have a good sense of what their body is telling them and this is a really big component of the work that i that i do with people it's getting them to to listen again to okay what is their body actually saying how can we start to use different objective measures to to work out what's working and and what's not because the vast majority of the people that that i see and and from from what little chat we had before we started i think this is the same for your audience is that most people are much more um able to sort of ignore hunger and keep pushing through or to ignore the fact that they're tired and keep going out and going for a run and so so often the feedback is to really ignore what the body is telling them um when they should be slowing down um but i do think that the the other side of that can also be be true that people are getting feedback that says, okay, you need to be be going outside or you need to be going and, and doing some movement, but they just they don't know what that that feeling is. And so it gets channeled into to doing something else instead. Mm, yeah, I agree hundred percent. Does so you talk and I have a couple of other questions, but I feel like this is a good segue to my <laughs> this other question I have with um, how can like trauma affect weight set point? Um, this is, again, it's probably a sort of a slightly contentious, um, thing because it it does the trauma itself impact on the set point or does the trauma typically lead to behaviors that then impact on, on the set point. Right. So there's been some really interesting research done. Um, so I've, I've done a podcast. I've been looking into different things around like adverse childhood experiences. So there, there was some really um, interesting research done about adverse childhood experiences, which are all different types of traumas, um, which could be physical abuse, could be sexual abuse, could be psychological abuse, could be neglect, uh, parent going to prison. There, there was about 10 different questions that were asked around around this as part of the, uh, the ACE study. And what they found is the higher someone's ACE score, uh, the more likely they were to um, have 
lots of different health complications as part of that, but also lots of different um, behaviours or more likely to have certain behaviours that could also be uh, troublesome, whether that be uh, being more promiscuous, whether that be sort of drink and and drugs or uh, other addictions. Um, And so as part of this research and, and what actually prompted a lot of this research uh, was looking at, um, it, was, it was research done by a guy called, uh, I think it was Vincent Folletti, uh, who was working at an obesity research clinic or the obesity research clinic was was part um, of uh, Kaiser Permanente, um, which is this insurance company in, in the States. And as part of that, they were looking at why there was this really high dropout rate as part of um, this clinic. And and what they discovered was there was this really high dropout rate as part of the clinic, uh, but it wasn't when people were plateauing or it wasn't when people's weights were now start coming up the others, uh, going back up after coming down. It was actually when they were starting to, well, where they were continuing to lose weight. And so they started to bring a lot of these people back in and and interview them and try and work out what was going on. And what they stumbled upon was a a very high percentage of those people had suffered significant trauma. And the trauma that they originally discovered was around sexual abuse and, and often incest. And what they found as part of that was that people were talking about when they were starting to lose weight, they were then getting complimented, they were getting attention, they were getting um, people's eyes on them now uh, that they hadn't had before. And so they then started to drop out and started to eat again to, to, make, them feel, to make them feel safe. Um, so there's, there's that part of trauma that then can impact on, on someone's um, eating habits. And so I don't know if it's necessarily set point, um, but that can lead to someone being in, in a larger body. It can also work in, in the opposite direction. So there are people who go through experiences like that um, and then decide that they're going to, um, and, and when I say decide they're going to, it often happens very unconsciously, mm-hmm. um, but that's when they start to um, eat less and less and less and um, the people often make comments around the fact that they wanted to become androgynous and because if they were androgynous then they wouldn't get the attention that they that they got before and I I will just add that it's very easy to create post-talk stories to explain why a behavior happens so some of these things may be the real explanation some of them might not be the real explanation Uh, but yet trauma seems to have an impact um, if not on set point at least on people's behaviors um, and um, the, the things that they keep up that can then impact on their weight yeah, I've I've heard this before. Um, I had a guest on Maddie Moon, and she yep. talks about that a lot. Um, and a lot of the work that I'm doing too is also just exploring, you know, what behaviors in your life or what childhood wounds have you gone through in your life that have sort of like dictated or created your core beliefs, which then, you know, affect your behaviors. And a lot of people will binge eat because out of scarcity or, you know, all those kinds of things. So this is the piece of the work that I'm extremely fascinated with, with, you know, just uncovering the past wounds and things that people have gone through that then dictate, you know, why we behave in the way that we behave and just uncovering all of that. So I just, yeah, it's, it's all 
I just feel like there's just so much more to talk about when it comes to weight, because it's not just a calories in calories out thing. I just, there's just so much more to it in my opinion. Yeah. And, and just with, with the set point theory and, and how that can possibly be related to trauma, like one of the big bits of research they went through when I was putting together the, the podcast show um, that originally dealt with this was this really great theory called the selfish brain theory, which was really fascinating. And basically what it tried to do was, was bring together all of the different uh, other proxies around how the body starts to understand what it what it weighs and and whether it should be driving someone to be eating more or eating less etc but as part of the selfish brain theory um, it looks at the fact that uh, that the body and the brain need um, their own amounts of energy and, and as part of the theory it kind of separates these two out and that's not to say that your your body and brain are, are separate but just as part of explaining this theory and now our brains despite the fact that they really weigh a very tiny amount of our total weight um use around 20 percent of our energy so it's a huge energy supply that is going to to our brain and what they looked at as part of this research was that your body needs its amount of energy and your brain needs its amount of energy and what dictates how much energy will come in is actually uh the brain but what you can have happen is that the body can or the 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 energy supply can be tilted in one direction or another so let's imagine that your body needs a certain amount your brain needs a certain amount but it's tilted much more in the direction of your body So of all the energy that's coming in, and I'm just going to use some some simple percentages just to make it easy, let's imagine that of all the energy that's coming in, 80% is going to your body and 20% is going to your brain. Your brain then needs to hit a certain amount of energy. And because the, 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 the way it is tilted, it means you're going to have to eat more and more and more to actually get to that amount because so much of it goes to your body first. And so in that situation, um, someone is going to be much more likely to put on weight or to be at a higher set point because of how that's tilted. If you then go in the the other direction and it's now tilted 80% towards your brain and 20% towards your body, your um, with the energy that comes in, your brain gets that much, much quicker. And so it then tells you you no longer need to eat. You can then um, eat less because of that. And as part of this theory, they looked at a number of different um common situations, whether it be something like diabetes or something uh, like anorexia, et cetera, to then explain how this all then makes sense. And with pretty much all of those various conditions, there was always some level of uh, stress or some trauma or some incident that then shifted uh, the the energy coming into um, to either the brain or to the body to to a much ex, uh, higher extreme than would ordinarily be the case, and that was then the driver for for those various conditions that they then explored. So that I just wanted to add that in to how that could possibly um, be impacting on what someone thinks of as their their weight set point being linked into trauma. Hmm. So, just so I can clarify, are you saying that? the does that change like the way that you know it's dictated based does it just does it change based on the circumstance 
so it's not like if you have your partner leave you, this is what's going to happen with your brain. Or if you have this incident, this is going to happen. So it was just, there can be an incident. And because of that incident, it can go one of multiple different ways. Um, But it's, it's often the preceding incident that then starts to uh, cause the change in terms of that energy allocation. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. I guess I'm just curious based on your, just on your work and kind of our conversation today, what, what does like health mean on to you or like, how can we start thinking differently about like weight? Um, just your thoughts on all of that in general. Um, so in terms of what does health mean to me, I mean, this is a difficult one because it's not, when I'm working with clients, it's not actually up to me to answer that question. It's then up to the client to answer that question of, okay, what it really means to them. Um, but if I was to, to answer that, it would be, how do we think about health in the broadest possible terms? So how does, um, like, how does what you're doing, whether that be through food or exercise or movement or um, relationships or all of the other components um, that have an impact on on your life, like how does that sort of aid you in your ability to have the best possible life? And, and again, you can define what best possible life really means, but it should be things like how does it give me the ability to have good energy? How does it give me ability to have uh, a strong digestive system or to be able to wake up feeling refreshed, etc.? So there's all of these markers that you can then start to look um, towards to see, okay, is this actually supporting what I um, need to be supporting? Is it doing for me what I really want it to be doing for me? Because I think what typically happens is people get into the trap of thinking that weight equals health, i.e. if I lose more weight, I'm going to be more healthy um, while forgetting all of these other markers. And so you have people doing things, um, whether that be doing things with exercise or doing things with their diet, that leads to them having a uh, possibly more aesthetically pleasing appearance based on our society's standards or norms or biases, but actually they now don't get their period or they're now not able to sleep properly or uh, they have very erratic moods, like just like this long list of symptoms that start to to come up for it. So I'm always sort of questioning like, a bigger picture, okay, what does health really mean to you? Um, and B, then starting to challenge some of those beliefs that often people have. Because I think the other issue is people forget context. And so there's very much a this is healthy all of the time and this is unhealthy all of the time, as opposed to where the gray is with all of that because exercise isn't healthy or unhealthy it depends on how well your body can respond to that what food are you giving it what rest are you giving it where's your uh like fitness levels to start with versus what you're you're then throwing on top of that um and same with like eating like something is healthy um depending on how you react and you do to that 
on that food. So there'll be times where I'm working with clients and they're eating quote unquote healthy food, but they're doing terribly on it because they don't have the digestive capacity to do well on eating lots of salads or eating lots of steamed vegetables, um, despite how healthy they are um, kind of made out to be. They don't do well on it. And the, the opposite is also true, where people do well eating pancakes or do well eating foods that uh, like you typically aren't told you should be eating or you're, you're typically told are unhealthy. But actually, when they eat those things and they pay attention, they actually do really well on it. So, yeah, I think I, I know I'm kind of going sort of around different places with this. But, yeah, when I think about health, the, the big thing that really comes to mind is getting people to really understand what that term means, but also getting them to understand context. Cause I think that really gets lost and people get into this very black and white thinking. Yes. I was hoping that's where you would go because that's kind of my mission right now is there is no black and white thinking as much as we have been told, you know, it's all totally based on the individual and, how that feels in your body and, you know, what might be a healthy weight for somebody might not be a healthy weight for you. And that's why I think this conversation is so important because our weight set point is different for everybody. You know, someone could be in, I could be in a smaller body and lose my period, or someone could be in my body and lose their, like, you know, it's, it's so, it's so individualized. And if you're not paying attention to the signs that are being given from your body, then, you know, we're kind of missing this whole pursuit of health <laughs> in my opinion. Yeah. And I also, I mean, I'm, I am one that when having conversations like this wants to sort of point people towards privilege and, and understanding the privilege that they often have. And the reason I'm mentioning this is it's so common to see in the media about life expectancy is getting worse and if people just ate more fruits and vegetables if people just did more exercise if people just got more sleep uh that things would just drastically change and the bit that is always missing as part of that is understanding okay what really gets in the way for people around that stuff and so when we're thinking bigger picture there's a lot of issues that are going on in terms of socioeconomics and um, things that are really outside people's control. And so I'm just mentioning this because like I come from a very privileged place in terms of uh, I'm male, I'm white, I'm sort of middle class. I've always been lucky to be in a healthy body. Um, I've had good role models in terms of eating, in terms of having healthy relationships, etc. And that makes a massive difference. Yeah. And if you're coming from a place that doesn't have any of those things, then just being told you need to eat some more fruits and vegetables or you need to go and get some exercise isn't necessarily helping helping someone because that's like, even if that's what they need to do, there can be monumental roadblocks in, in front of that. And so, yeah, I'm just wanting to, to mention that because it can become pretty easy for people um, to not be great at uh, perspective taking and not really understand the, the place that different people are at. Yeah, a hundred percent. Totally agree with you. I think that's definitely an extremely important point to mention and something I'm just digging into as well. And yeah, it's, it, yeah, it's also important. 
we are getting close to the end of our time. And I want to make sure first that we've covered everything that you want to discuss. Um, I know this is kind of a heavy topic. I'm definitely going to refer people to your podcast episode on this specifically, but is there anything else that you wanted to touch on that we didn't really dig into quite yet? Um, I guess, I mean, there's kind of two things that I, that I want to mention. Like the first one I would say is like when thinking about weight set point or, or set point theory or like this idea is that we also have to like remember that we have evolved over millions of years and it's really been only in the last um, tiny amount of time from an evolutionary perspective that our lives have drastically changed. And so I think there is a mismatch between how weight regulation works and, and our sort of modern lives. And it was probably about keeping us alive and can, helping us to continue to search for food in, in times of famine and then allowing us uh, to use more, uh, allowing us to do more in times of abundance so that you, you see that people would conceive more in, in the springtime and in the summertime when more food had come in, etc. So I think th that we do need to kind of keep that in mind, that how we evolved and, and had this set point or ha had this um, mechanism in place is very different to, to where we are now. I mean, a, a great example of that is, uh, the, the emotions that we have or the, the feelings that we have for disgust. So like we evolved with the capability for disgust probably to kind of ward us away from, from eating spoiled food. Uh, but now we use disgust to think about people's beliefs or their behavior. So we're using old hardware for, for, for new use. And because of this, there's going to be glitches. So, for example, you put people in a room um, and you ask them a set of questions. They'll give you one set of responses. You put them in a room. You stink up that room with smelly garbage. They have very different responses. People become more socially conservative when you put them in a room that smells of garbage. That's just what happens with our thinking and feeling. So I just want to kind of give that as a bit of an example of we're using very, very old hardware to deal with things that are different now as, as part of this. Um, but I would say the, the real reason why I think that this is an, an important topic in terms of set point theory is that I want people to use this information for, for good. So not to get into the place of like panicking, have I uh, broken my, my set point? What would have happened if I never got into dieting um, and that kind of thing, but to, to really use it as a, as a helpful thing moving forward. So to get people to, to stop dieting and to from from wherever point they're at now to just move forward from from that without dieting to get people to start to focus on healthful behaviors irrespective of what happens in terms of their weight as i've kind of talked about to get people to focus on factors outside of food so to look at things like uh, like light sources and circadian rhythm generally and, and how that impacts on now our, our health and our and our way to like deal with the the emotional connection uh with food because the more someone fears food the more they have good and bad foods the more they still sort of diet and then not diet the more you have this sort of 
hedonic reward with food. Um, and so it kind of push, pushes you in the, the direction that you, you really don't want to be going. Uh, we talked about trauma and, and the ACE study. I mean, even just general chronic stress has an impact on, on someone's weight irrespective of what they're eating. And this is something I've talked about myself. I mean, I mentioned earlier on that I have a propensity to not put on weight and I'm kind of more on the, the lean side of things irrespective of what I do. But the times that that hasn't happened have all been times in my life where stress was high and actually my eating went down. So uh, there was a time where uh, my visa got turned down and I, I couldn't work for, it was like four or five months. I didn't know if I was going to be able to stay in the UK. Uh, there was another time where I moved into uh, an, uh, an apartment that was just a, a disaster um, and I was starting my, my own business and it was incredibly stressful. I was working like three or four different jobs just to try and make it work. Uh, another situation where my, my partner had an ectopic pregnancy. Um, and, and all of these were scenarios in which I, I ate less, but there was just a hell of a lot more stress going on. And so it impacted on my weight. And so just to get people to start to look outside of just the what food am I eating or what exercise am I, am I doing? And then the, the final part of it is just to get people to embrace body diversity because we are meant to live in bodies of different shapes and sizes, despite what we typically see on the screen or in uh, the media or in advertising, et cetera. Uh, there's a very, very small percentage of people who will live in those bodies. And there's even a smaller percentage of people who will live in those bodies and do it healthily. And so getting people to understand that your weight doesn't equal your health and your body doesn't equal your worth and getting people to really embrace that. So that's what I want people to take away from this discussion away around weight set point um, and, and why I think it's important. Yes. Yes to all of that. I just think this is so important and Yes, to I could talk about the body diversity and accepting um, different body types and the biases around all of those kinds of things could be a whole other episode <laughs> that, um, yeah. you know, all of that. But yes, I think this is all so important. I think we just, yes, need to come back to this idea that health is so individualized. It's, it's not a thing that you can fit into one box and, um, you know, it, yeah, there's just so many things I could say, but I know, I know, I know, I know I massively <laughs> unloaded on you there with many, many different things uh, without a proper chance to to respond to each of them. No. Um, I, I just wanted to kind of get some some final ideas out there for people. No, I love it. I think yeah, it's great. Um, well, Chris, I again could talk to you all day about all of these things, but um, thank you so so much for your time here and for digging into some of these really important topics. Um, where can people find you if they want to connect? Um, so the best place for people to, to come to is my website, which is seven-health.com. And that's seven as the word spelt out. So S-E-V-E-N hyphen.com. 
uh, hyphen health.com. So seven hyphen health.com. Um, and then the other place that people can go is to check out my podcast, uh, which is called real health radio. Um, and typically what I will do as part of that, I think I'm up to 133, episodes when, whenever this actually gets released. Um, but about half the episodes will be guest episodes like this. So there's a conversation and then the other half will be me doing um, solo episode. So I did the, the solo episode on weight set point theory. I've done one on the, the ACE study. I've done one on my, my overeating experiment just to kind of name check some of the ones that I've, I've already mentioned. But yeah, there's a lot of solo episodes where I'll spend an hour, hour and a half, sometimes two hours delving into to a topic and looking at the, the research um, around those different areas. Awesome. Um, cool. yeah. So yeah, they, they would, it's just those two. I mean, from there you can find my Facebook page and, and that kind of thing, but it would be those two places that I would most recommend people heading to. Perfect. I'll make sure all of that's linked up and I'll again, link out individually to the episode on weight set point theory. And yeah, Chris, thank you for, again, thank you for being here. Thank you for your work. And I just, yeah, I appreciate your time. Cool. Well, look, this was really a lot of fun. It was lovely to get a chance to, to chat with you and, and hopefully people find this useful. Agreed. <laughs> well, thanks everyone for being here and we will all chat soon. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you at all resonated with today's message, please give it a share either with a friend or a family member or on Instagram. You can tag me at Stephanie Dankelson. The best way to get this podcast growing and to share this message with the world is through word of mouth. Thank you to those of you who have already shared this podcast. It means so much to me. I appreciate all of you and we will see you all soon.